Welcome to Sad Styles Productions. Let me run you through our daily specials. On Tuesday, get over here while Mikey and Andrew celebrate the three-year anniversary of the Retrograde Podcast with Mortal Kombat. On a special day this Thursday, losing money with Andrew Baskin breaks down all the ways you can lose money on the NFL draft. On Thursday, the Jackass crew relives the pain and glory of the TV show Jackass. Also on Thursday, Mikey and Brian let you in on all the secrets of sports marketing on the sign-off, a framework podcast. Keep your hands inside the car at all times. Enjoy the ride. Get into it. Coming up, a Sad Styles production. Hello and welcome. My name is Mike Aaronorth, signing on to the sign-off once again. Now, if you've been listening all along, you'll know that we take a lot of pride in exploring the backside of sports, the backside of sports, the business end of sports. That doesn't make it much better. Regardless, we spend a lot of time trying to show everyone out there who's a fan of the traditional day-to-day sports what it's like to work behind the scenes. Now, in our mind, there's no one better to do that than one of the godfathers of the radio broadcasting world, especially in Canada, Bob McCowan. Now, Bob McCowan has founded Fadu Productions, and if you've been paying attention to the end of this podcast or the beginning, if you're watching on YouTube, the sign-off is a proud product of Fadu Productions, along with Sad Styles Productions. Anyone who's just starting out in this business, if on your sixth or so episode, you get the chance to sit down with Bob McCowan, you take that every single time you can get it. Uh, I was so excited to be able to talk to Bob about his beginnings in this industry, and even before this industry, he spends a lot of time talking to other people and asking the questions. I loved to be able to take the opportunity and ask him the questions uh, to put the shoe on the other foot, so to speak. Now, obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about podcasting in general. He's relatively new to this world, as are we here at the sign-off. But one other thing that we want to focus on is his involvement with sports beyond the scope of him being a broadcaster. He's done quite a bit. He's spoken to many legends. His stories about Muhammad Ali are absolutely not something you'd want to miss. Uh, So I don't want to delay any longer. If you know him and you love him, it's Bob McCowan. We will see you guys after the break. Okay, and welcome back, and uh, thank you so much for this uh, special, special guest that we have. I know I say that at just about the beginning of every episode, even if it's just you, Dad. It's, it's <laughs> you and me, and you're, you're special in my mind. Um, we have with us the founder of Fudu Productions. You can find his podcast, uh, the Bob McCowan pod- Podcast, over wherever you get your podcasts. We, as the sign-off, are also a member of his production company, Fudu Productions, very proud member of that. And he's here as, uh, you know, he was originally one of the godfathers of uh, Canadian commentary in sports, and now one of the godfathers of Canadian podcasting and sports, Bob McCowan. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Hello, boys. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing? Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, look, it's been a it's been a fun ride so far. Uh, we at the sign off have been uh, slightly earlier uh, or later than you in starting the the whole podcast train. But you know, you spent a, a good chunk of years going on the radio and and only recently moved over to podcasting. Uh, how how's it been treating you? I think it was about June or so of last year that you started yours. Yeah, in a different format, uh, we we started off doing five-minute daily podcasts where people could ask me questions. So we invited people to uh, participate through social media and then got, I think in the first day, we got six months worth of people. Oh, really? And Yeah, it was crazy. And um, so we started down that road, and I, I don't even remember how many episodes we did, um, 25, 30, 50, I don't remember of the five minute version. And quite frankly, I was, 
uneducated in terms of podcasts. And that's like my dad in terms of mathematics. <laughs> so, yeah, well, unconvinced of the viability of it long term. And I just kept getting talked into it over and over and over again. So I, I started with this five minute thing. And, you know, two things happened. Number one, I, I got tired of doing it, mm -hmm. <laughs> to be honest with you, a answering questions when I spent my whole life asking them. I was going to say, what did you like more, asking or answering the questions? Uh, I'm much more comfortable asking questions fair, fair. Um, than I am answering them. And the second thing was I started doing some serious homework um, about this and and contacted a bunch of people that I, I whose opinion I respected. And um, so we we abandoned the five minute routine, changed the name of it and essentially relaunched as what was originally planned to be about a 30 minute podcast a day. Now I know that podcasts, you, you, you can do podcasts uh, for as long as you want. You, you can do a 24 hour podcast if you wanted to. Right. I just thought the 30 minutes was a, was a solid, a good time. Um, living in Toronto, uh, I think people get into their cars, they want to listen to something. 30 minutes seemed a reasonable amount of time. That may not be your full drive, but it's a good, good hunk of a uh, chunk of it. And so we kind of settled on that. And then I brought John Shannon in because of course, um, I'm obliged to make sure that Shannon <laughs> take him under your wing a little bit. Well, as I have for years and years and years. <laughs> and so, um, it was like this, the, the, the grown son I never had, uh, well, ask my and, dad. That's not uh, it's it's not so pleasurable in it from his perspective. Well, no comment. So, <laughs> I um, uh, Shannon and I started doing it. We started at thirty minutes, and then as often as not, it was thirty-five, and then it got to forty, and we did a couple ones that were an hour. And and as a podcast, of course, you're not under the same restrictions as you are in broadcasting, right? So you can do as long as you want or and, as short as you want. And that's as that's as the person recording as well as the person listening. I mean, that's one of the benefits. You talk about someone's drive to work. Now they don't have to schedule their drive around when you're going to go live on air. Instead, it's whenever they want to get in the car. Everyone's hearing the same thing. Now, um, one thing I find very interesting about you, especially later, uh, like, like uh, more currently, you talk a lot about the business of sports. There was a recent article uh, about December of last year. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the uh, author's name correct. Simon, who? Hout? Is that? Yeah, Hout. Yeah, a, a really good article, very in-depth, uh, that kind of, uh, I don't want to say exposed, but just brought to light a lot of the things that you've been going over over the past year or so. And you had a quote in there that I found uh, particularly uh, applicable to what we're going to be talking about today uh, in regards to the business of sports. You said, uh, you know who I talk to in regards to your audience? The 55-year-old millionaire works on Bay Street. In my mind, that's my target audience. What he's, what's he interested in? He's a business guy. He's interested in business. He's interested in economics. He's interested in behind the scenes. Now, that's as our mentality here, sort of our mantra is to explore the business of sports. Was that always your intention? Or was your intention at first to just make it so that sports were applicable to everyone and you grew into that role? Uh, and how much is that focus of, of business now over just talking about what happened last night in a hockey game? Well, I almost never talk about what happened last night in a hockey game. I, I couldn't care or less, and I don't think the audience can care less. Or I mean, if they care, they cared last night. They don't care the next day. Sure. Um, look, and I can't tell you that I had this specific concept when I started forty years ago, but uh, I grew into it. And you know, you gotta you gotta kiss a bunch of frogs before you you land the princess. Sure. Or the other way around, I guess it is supposedly. Uh, 
And so, yeah, I interviewed a lot of athletes in the early days and they had nothing to say. <laughs> they all go to media they all they all go to media school. They all learn to answer questions without saying anything. They're just exactly the same as politicians. Right. Ask a politician a question, he'll talk for 2 minutes, but he won't you'll forget what the question was because you won't even come close to answering it. That's fair. I so, mean, they already, they, they have that like cliched thing of, of a, an athlete saying, well, it's gut check time or you got to get pucks deep or something like that. Like it always ends up feeling like the same. It's all interview. the same crap. Right. Over and over and over again. So what I did is I, I basically told all my producers, get rid of those guys. I don't want to talk to those guys anymore. So, you know, what would I also found? And again, over time and not by looking necessarily was that, Former athletes, as soon as athletes hang up their sweater for the last time, they suddenly become a different person. Right. Suddenly much more open, at least in terms of uh, generically speaking. I mean, uh, I can't say that for every one of them. Some of them will always revert back to the mentality they had when they were playing. But the older uh, an athlete is, the, the further away from the game he is, the more inclined he is to observe it as an outsider right. and rationally, reasonably. And so, um, to this day, I will still have former athletes on, not anyone because just because they're an athlete right? and, and there are a lot of programs that do that. Um, they have to have demonstrated to me in some way, shape or form that they're capable of carrying on a reasonably intelligent conversation. That's um, fair. Yeah. But from that standpoint, yeah, I will talk to former athletes and I'm always happy to talk to people who are involved in the business of sport, uh, whether it's owners, general managers, even coaches, um, investors. Um, I mean, we did, uh, we did Greg Cosell this morning. Now right. you probably don't know who Greg is, but you probably recognize his last name. Cosell. His uncle was Howard Cosell. Okay. And Greg is, um, had been involved with NFL films for about 40 years. Mm. And, you know, I, I'd never met Greg before, never talked to him before. So I had no real idea where the conversation was going to go. And it, it turned out to be a fascinating conversation. Right. Because what he does is essentially dissects film mm -hmm. um, in terms of scouting. Oh, okay. So not, not films as in ESPN 30 for 30. This is game footage. Oh, no. They do that too. NFL okay. films. He works for NFL films, the NFL films. And that's okay. principally what they do is they do documentaries. Awesome. Sports documentaries, almost always NFL documentaries. But this is one of the tasks that they, that they perform as they do, and especially going into the draft. Now, he does this for NFL films. He doesn't do it for outside interest, for coaches or general managers in trying to find players in the draft. He does it for NFL films and the kinds of projects that they're going to be producing. And I, I just found it a completely fascinating conversation. Um, the kind of in-depth behind the scenes stuff that I wouldn't even, wouldn't even have thought to look for. Yeah. And that's, so, that's sort of what, what we want to bring to the table as well with, with our podcast, you know, everyone has access to, like you said, the, w whatever happened the night before, but we're more focused on the things that people don't even know that they want to know about sports and it's all in the back end. And that's one thing, again, that's fascinated us about, about the way you carry on your conversations. Uh, there's a different demographic than just a sports fan. And that's, that's, that's why we figured this partnership with Fadu was, was, was so amicable. Um, now I want to talk, I know you said, and I'm sorry to do this to you, that you're uh, more comfortable asking the questions than being asked the questions, but I like to take the opportunity to get to know 
the man behind the glasses, so to speak, uh, as often as we can. Now, you started working for CKFH, I think would have been one of your first notable jobs in the industry as a salesperson, mm -hmm. correct? Well, I actually started with um, CFTR, which was is now known as 680 News. Okay. Uh, six, CFTR was a top 40 station. Uh, back in those days, it was Chum and 680 that had the two top 40 uh, signals. And uh, then wound up taking a job in Sarnia, Ontario, of all places. Mm. Um, and I was I was in broadcast sales. I was a golf pro at the time. Right. And looking for if you're a golf professional in the winter time or in the summertime here, you're looking for a winter job. And I'd done a bunch of things. And I had a member who sold advertising time. He says, "Why don't you sell advertising time?" And I said, "Well, sure, I'll try anything for sure. one winter." And um, went to 680 News, and they basically handed me the yellow pages. And said, yeah, "Here you go." And um, of course, I was a complete and utter failure. <laughs> and uh, and then took it, and I was on commission, so I didn't get paid anything. Right, right. Sold nothing. Didn't sell a damn thing. <laughs> and uh, um, then they said, "We've got an opening in our radio station we own in Sarnia, and they'll pay you a salary." And I, I'm not ashamed to tell you, my salary was six hundred dollars a month. Okay, that was my salary. And I said, "Giddy up." And uh, packed up my uh, my uh, uh, Dodge Challenger. Ooh, that's a that's a nice one. That's a throwback. Drove to, drove to Sarnia. Um, showed up there with a uh, full length, full fur coat, uh, <laughs> long hair, full beard, and white clogs with blue butterflies painted on the. Floor. Oh my god! And did you make a stop at Salvation said, Army before going or what, what happened there? Uh, I mean, that was me, you know, that was me back then. And, um, I basically showed up as this guy from Toronto and, Hey, I'm here. And, uh, they all thought I was, they'd lost their minds. They were seeing things. Was this role, was this an on-air role that you were coming? No, off it was a, I was selling advertising. So at, at what uh, point? I had no aspiration to be on air. That I was going to be. had any aspiration to be on air. That was going to be my next question. So when you're starting as uh, in sales, essentially, you have no concept of what's about to come. And look for $600 a month, we, we see your screen. And if you're watching on YouTube, you see the screen as well. That's a home office. Uh, and you're not ashamed to talk about the selling price of your, uh, your current living situation. Correct. You want to, Tell the listener what uh, what you managed to get. It's a little bit more than six hundred dollars a month. Are we are we willing to go there? Well, yeah, I just sold the house for ten million. <laughs> nothing, nothing. So how many so, months? How many months would you have had to work at six hundred dollars a month to be able to afford that? I, well, I'd never be able. You know, I the no. answer to that. I'd never been able to afford it. <laughs> but again, you, you know, you got to remember too that this was nineteen um, seventies. Right. Right. So. Right. You know, I actually lived okay. Sure. No, yeah. I had a I had a one bedroom apartment in Sarnia and I fed myself and put gas in the car and did what I had to do back then. Anyway, so I wound up staying a year for reasons that are completely inexplicable. <laughs> and then they actually they actually fired me, which was a blessing. Sure. And I came back to Toronto and um I got offered a couple of jobs in advertising sales, and one of them was by CKFH, which was Foster Hewitt Station. Mm -hmm. And Foster was still alive at the time. And I'll tell the story as briefly as I can. And um, uh, while I was in Sarnia, with almost nothing to do in the evening, sure, um, I'd go into the radio station and goof around in the production room. So I'd record myself you know, play disc jockey and whatever. Oh, wow. And, okay. And, and 
um, because I was in sales, I, I, uh, I, had, I actually had clients by that point. And one of them said to me, will you do our commercials for us? And I thought, me? I don't even know. I have no idea how to do that. Wow. Okay. And I said, okay, sure. So I went in one night and I, I scribbled something down. And, I, I, and, the, and the, the, the advertiser was Merle Norman Cosmetics. So it wasn't even targeted at guys. It was a female <laughs> product. So I tried to do the, you know, low voice, sexy kind of presentation. Sure. Uh, which I had no, no skills at. And um, one by one, the other clients said, hey, do my commercial, do my commercial. So, but that's as far as I got. I come to Toronto and of course, that's not even in the, uh, you, that, you don't even talk about that. Right. But I had that little taste and I played disc jockey, you know, for fun when I was in Sarnia. So I, uh, at one point I went to, uh, and sales, I was not the least bit interested in it. I just got, kind of got stuck in it. And I was, I was, I kept saying next year, I'm going to go back to the golf business. Right. And I went to the sales manager who also happened to be the sports director who also happened to do play by play of Toronto Maple Leaf hockey, Ron Hewitt. Okay. And I said to him, Ron, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, I, I want to be on air. So I'm going to go to some peanut whistle radio station in Aurelia or someplace. And I'm going to see if I can be a sportscaster because I, I like to try that. Yeah. And he said, well, you can't. And I said, Ron, you don't have this. You don't, you haven't figured this out. I said, I'm quitting. It's not your choice. You, you can't tell me I can't quit. <laughs> and, and he says, well, no, you can't quit because if you really want to be on air, I'll put you on air here. Wow. Okay. So the deal he struck with me was that I would do five sports casts a day at 7.30 and 8.30 in the morning, 12.30 in the afternoon, and 4.30 and 5.30 in the evening. And in between times, I would continue to sell advertising. Now, what, what year would this have been? Boy, that's a harder one. I want to say 1973. Okay, so this is before... Uh, cause I, before everything, this is before everything. Uh, and, and so you, were, but you were, everything. you were put on air at this point. Yeah. Now uh, he was dumb enough to put me on air <laughs> I mean, with no audition tape, no idea, no nothing. We're doing the same thing. We never in Toronto. Yeah. And this is in Toronto. This is the, the largest market. market in the country and now the fourth largest market in North America. So this is a unique and rare opportunity. And of course I did everything I could to screw it up because uh, I was terrible <laughs> on air at the beginning. <laughs> And I, I remember him calling me one day and he's, after I did a sports cast where I, I just butchered it, I was bumbling and stumbling all over the place. And he called me and he said, if you do one more of those, you're gone. Hmm. And fortuitously, I didn't. Fortuitously. And that's how day. I got, got my start in broadcasting. And then a few months later, I, I went to him and I said, look, at this sales stuff is just awful. I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't remember if it was simultaneously or not. I said, why don't we do a sports talk show? Mm -hmm. Because I had started to listen to a guy by the name of Pete Franklin. Okay. Who was on 3WE in Cleveland. And their signal came into Toronto at night. And Franklin did a nightly sports talk show where he talked to fans. Like sports talk in those days was phoning. Right, right. And for inexplicable reasons, Hewitt gave me the right to do it. And we started doing it one day a week. We did it on Monday nights. And then we did Mondays and Fridays. And then eventually it morphed into seven days or five days a week. 
and I was doing the sports cast at the same time. And the talk show was on at 10 o'clock at night. So talk about long days. Uh, and then eventually I gave up the, the sports cast during the day. Uh, and if I remember correctly, I hired Mark Hebsher initially to do the sports cast. <laughs> okay. And my first producer on the radio talk show was a 19-year-old snot-nosed punk <laughs> um, who worked in the back shop at Eaton's who bugged me forever and ever sending me stats about sports that I didn't care about. <laughs> and I, I wound up hiring him as my producer, and his name was Mark Askin. Oh, and I geez. don't know if you know Mark, yeah. but Mark is a long time, the longtime senior producer of Maple Leaf Hockey and Hockey Day in Canada and Molson Hockey and all kinds of stuff. So he went on to have a pretty good career on his own too, but he was my first producer. Oh, wow. And the train of people that have come through uh, my show has been extraordinary. Who, who, uh, who's been one of your and, favorite people to work with? As a producer? Sure, or, or just someone who you've consistently had on, on air. And, and this is not to disparage any of the people you're not going to mention, but someone who you just... Well, always... that would be inevitable, wouldn't it? Because they would <laughs> all I think, like to think that they were the favorite. Of course, of course. I know I would. Yeah. I've been on your show a couple um, of times. Maybe it's I'll me. Probably, yeah. I'll probably... I'll plead the fifth on that one. Okay, I, that's fair. I you know, I don't think I have a favorite... Um, look, you get along with people to varying degrees. You've had people that weren't your favorites. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we and plead um, the fifth on that one, too. Yeah. The people that I liked, but on a daily basis clashed with all the time mm -hmm. and didn't have any relationship with off-air. Well, I will say this. Jim Hunt was one. Oh, really? I respected Shaky. Um, I, you know... The audience liked Shaky. The show was successful at that time. But did we get along off air? Hell no. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. So, uh, no, we didn't fight. We just had no relationship off air. Right. Bill Waters and I were extremely friendly. But we rarely socialized off air. And, and, and that wasn't because we didn't like each other, I don't think. I think we, just, we were just different guys who had sure. different priorities. When the mic was turned off. You know, he went his way, I went my way. When it when it boils down to it, it's it's a coworker, right? I mean, there are plenty of coworkers that I've worked with that I'm not going to grab a beer with after not because sure. I dislike them, but just you know, we have different priorities, different different places in life. Now, uh, one thing that I found fascinating, I want to take us uh, up a little bit to 1988, uh, leading up to your premiere of Primetime Sports in 1989. Now, the first episode of Primetime Sports. Tell me if I'm right about this. Is it true that you recorded it? essentially a year before it aired. Uh, no. That's not true. Not true. So, so the episode of 1989 that, uh, that, that aired, the, I believe would have been the, the airtime of primetime sports, correct? It was 89? Um, I came back in summer of 88. Right. And we did my show pre before I, I left, I moved to Vegas. When, when the show I'd done before that, the talk show was called Talking of Sports. Okay. And when I came back, Bill Waters was the co-host of the, sh the show that I came back to, which was also called Talking of Sports. Mm -hmm. And for reasons that I can't explain and don't remember, um, some, somebody decided we should change the name of the show. And I don't know why. Maybe it was because it was moved to a different time. 
that probably was the answer. But, but anyway, it became primetime sports. Right. And then ultimately primetime sports was used as the vehicle to launch the fan. Right. But that didn't happen until 1993. Right. So the I was the first voice on the fan when we unveiled the first all sports radio station in Canada. Yeah, and fairly synonymous, I think, with, with the fan in, in general. I and, mean, that's... And coincidentally, it was around the same time that Framework started up. There you and go. that's how we got to know each well, other. Well, let's let's go into that a little bit. Let's Because uh, I do want to pick up uh, later on, uh, post-93, once we start to get into the uh, the Rogers takeover and and the proposal to simulcast primetime sports. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a little oh, I bit. Thought you wanted to, I thought you wanted to talk about my, my fantastic... Uh, uh, sports memorabilia collection. Well, this so this is what I want to get into here. So I want to. I well, want to. You better hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about. Well, uh, wait a second. You know what, Bob? I've known you for many years now, and I've never heard some of those stories. So, uh, uh, unbeknownst to you, there are people that are interested in how you came about. I can't imagine why. Yeah, no, I mean, you, <laughs> nah, you made it. There happy and, to help. You know, I think it's a fascinating story, and there's a lot more to be told. But let's move on. Yeah. So the the memorabilia collection, uh, as far as Frameworth is involved, began with the Blue Jays winning the World Series. I believe was the first piece that uh, you, Dad, had mentioned you hand delivered to Bob. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the circumstances, Bob, that I had um, found your. I ad- might be wrong, but I think it's sitting here somewhere. Oh, really? Yeah, I had done yeah. a piece. I, 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 it's very weird. I, I pulled it out um, of the archives um, just the other day. Well, you know what? It a te- was sitting on, on my chair over here. $10 million house. Things can get lost in there pretty easily. I don't, you, you may never see that thing again. I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? I remember you had a house down uh, just off Young Street in Davisville in that area. And for some reason... Oh, I've lived a few places. I don't know how I came to first meet you. I somehow on the phone or Oh, you, you probably need... called me and bugged me. <laughs> I, you maybe needed some framing done or something. Anyways, I dropped Well, I I, I don't remember either, Brian. Yeah. But it's, I know it's been a long time. But I remember knocking on your door. There was somebody you were talking to at the time and then uh I had that piece signed by Dwayne Ward or something mm-hmm. and I wanted to show you, you know, what a good piece of memorabilia looked like. Right. And uh, we sat and talked for a while, and and that was the beginning. When the it first might not have been Dwayne Ward. You know who it might have been? Who's it that? might have been Wendell Clark. Ah, well, okay. no, this you was had, a Blue Jay. You had a you had a piece that you gave me that was. Um, uh, it wasn't a photograph, actually. It was a, a print, of a painting, I believe. Okay. I don't uh, know okay. if you remember it yes. with all the stuff that you've gone through, but but of Wendell <laughs> Clark, and I still have it, actually. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, well, I have basically everything that I've gotten from you, through you, whatever. So quickly, because uh, I, I want to talk about a project as well that Frameworth did work on you uh, uh, with uh, with regards to Muhammad Ali. And I want to get into that in a little bit. But before we do that, you as a fan of sports, I'm assuming you got into this industry because, you know, first and foremost, you were a fan or just someone who liked to play uh, disc jockey when no one else was around. But you cl- clearly have a very uh, large affinity towards sports. Was memorabilia big to you at that time? Was that was that something no. that was, oh, it wasn't. Now, have you since grown uh, I, into I was that? Being, I was being facetious. I I really don't have a big collection of anything. Right. For whatever reason, I've never asked for a single autograph, I don't think, in my life. I've never really collected things. I've accumulated things. Fair. Well, it, And those are two entirely different things. Yeah. Here's, to this point, we were at Bob's place the other day. Yeah. 
and we went into the office that I think he's sitting in now. And back when I first, when Sidney Crosby got his gold medal goal, 2010, yeah, I designed this uh, uh, commemorative jersey and a beautiful box, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I said, Bob, you got to have right one there, of these. So I, I saw it sitting on the counter there. Oh, okay. He doesn't have a lot of, it, as you saw, it, there isn't a lot of memorabilia around. But I said, geez, Bob. I gave that to you when it was worth about six hundred dollars. He said, "Yeah." He says, "What's it worth today?" I said, "So it's about twenty five hundred dollars." Bit of a change. And now they're almost sold out. There's like ten left. So he didn't even realize what he was sitting on. I said, "You know, you could sell it if you want." No, I'll keep it. <laughs> yeah, that feels feels like uh, one of the stories. As someone who accumulates instead of collects, um, are you uh, are you now getting into that at all, or is that something that's kind of off the table for you? It's just not in my nature. Um, I always felt uncomfortable in interviewing these people and then asking for an autograph. Sure. Take a photo. I mean, I don't have, I can't, can't tell you how many shows I've done. I can't tell you how many athletes I've, I've interviewed. It, it is well into the thousands, um, more than 10,000 shows. Mm -hmm. And you could argue you know, I have five or six guests. When I used to do the radio show, I had five or six guests on a sh on a show. So you could be talking fifty thousand guests. Wow. No, obviously it's repeats, but yeah, yeah. Um, never asked. Never, n never asked for a photograph. Never asked for an autograph. Now, do you um, think? But do you th do being th being of the profile that I had, uh, things came along. You know, it was not uncommon for me to go into the radio station. And there'd be a couple of things sitting sure, there. Sure, You know, whether it's a, ho a, a Hockey Canada jersey from, um, uh, from the Hockey Canada people or whether it's something from your dad, for Brian, whether it was, it, it could be from anybody. Do you, in, in spite of the fact that you were accumulating rather than collecting, do you have something that stands out as your favorite? Um, or the most valuable, one, one, one or the uh, other? Well, I don't value. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know value on anything. I've never bought. I've never bought anything. I've never sold anything. Sure. Um, although now with this move coming, I'm trying to downside. There may be some selling going on. There you go. <laughs> I'll take the barbecue. I, got, I mean, and and your dad will tell you the same thing because he's been in my house many times. I know you've been here, but I have really one place where I put up things that pertain to me or things that are important to me from my career. And that that's in my office. Right. Which we're seeing are, right now. Yeah. There are a couple of other pictures that are downstairs by the pool table that we wanted to talk about. And that's the two Muhammad Ali pictures. Right. I'd love to talk sat around about for 20 years. Um, and we did nothing with until you I showed them to your dad and I don't even remember the circumstances, Brian, it was just kind of a casual, you know, I got these that I took and he went, oh my God, those are, those are great. You know, where's the negatives? Well, before you even did that, Bob, I saw the, I saw the images and it was uh, two of the greatest shots I had ever seen of Muhammad Ali. There's been a lot of sports broadcast uh, photographs and right. that have been done, but these were really classic up close, very candid from a great angle. And I didn't know Bob had taken them. I said, wow, these yeah. are exceptional. And I said, where did you buy these? He said, I didn't. Go ahead, Pop, tell him the story. Well, I, um, Allie and I had become friends as uh, dating back to 73. And Allie used to call me 
on my radio. He would call me. Muhammad Ali called into my show whenever he wanted. Wow. He had my he had a private line that we've given him. And um, he lived in Chicago at the time. And uh, every couple of weeks, and Mark Askin was producing back then, and I, you know, I'd be sitting there, and you know, lines would be lighting up, and all of a sudden he'd come on and he'd say, "Ali on line four. Oh, wow! And I go, "Hi, champ. How are you?" And, <laughs> and you know, he'd he'd go into one of his, "I love your show and I admire your style, but the pay was so cheap, I won't be back for a while." <laughs> you know, he sounds like Eddie Shack a little bit, like like he he would get along with Eddie Shack those two. Well. I mean, that's the kind of relationship we had. So then in, in 83, Ali, I think it was 83, might have been 84. Ali was getting ready for what would be his last fight. And ironically, it was with Trevor Burbick, who was the Canadian heavyweight champion at the time. And the fight was in the Bahamas. And I went down to the Bahamas, you know, talked to Ali and his people and, and um, Bundini Brown, etc., and arranged to get some time with the champ. And who wasn't the champ at that point, by the way. He'd already lost to uh, Larry Holmes. Yep. And um, so we went down. I was at Global TV at the time, took a camera crew down, and there were four of us, me, a sound guy, a cameraman, and a producer. And we were an affiliate of ABC in terms of news feeds. And ABC found out that we were going to interview Ali. They tried to go and interview him as well. And Ali turned them down. Oh, wow. So uh, they then called us and said, well, called me and said, all right, we have the idea to shoot a piece of you following Ali. And I said, well, do whatever you want. I mean, <laughs> fill your hat. As long as it's okay with the champ, I'm sure. okay with it. So they sent a crew down that when we set up our cameras, wherever we set up our cameras, whether Ali, whether it was the sit-down interview, whether it was Ali training, whether it was um, Ali exercising, I went for a run with Ali. Well, it was more like a jog. I was going to say, how did that go? <laughs> well, Ali didn't run exactly like a sprinter. Did he Did he run backwards, though, like, like Apollo Creed and Rocky, I'd imagine? No, no. <laughs> this was all... This was all... And it's 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. Okay. So... Um, and, and Ali said, you want to come jog with me? And I said, yeah, sure. And I, I found out later, nobody had ever been allowed to. Oh, wow. He, yeah, so I was the first guy to ever do it. And the jog lasted about five minutes. So essentially we had a car and, um, our cameraman rolled down the window and had the camera outside the car and was driving along beside. Now, mind you, they could have walked as fast as we were running, but <laughs> so our cameraman followed um, Ali and I. And I tried talking to him, but he didn't want to talk while we were running. The one behind, time he doesn't want to on talk. On the other side of our car was a series of stretch white limousines with ABC had multiple cameras with multiple producers. They had like 20 people there. We had four. Huh. And they shot us shooting Ali. So this went on for the two days that, that we did this. I did my interview and my camera was here and ABC's camera was behind my camera. Anyway, this all winds up on Nightline. Wow. And back in the day when Nightline was the show, Ted yeah, Koppel right, was right. the host. 
Well, the irony is um, Nightline aired at 11.30 p.m. Sportsline on Global, my show, aired at 11.30 p.m. And I had no idea when they were going to run theirs, and I'd kind of forgotten about it. Sure. Turns out that they aired this show this one night, and I didn't even have anybody record it. So, um, and I always felt oh, no. funny about asking ABC for a copy of the tape. I was going to ask. So I never did. So the, to this day, I still have the Ali interview piece that we did. Right. But not but theirs the, with you in ABC, it. I never saw what ABC did. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of tragic bad. in a way. I mean, that, I mean, it speaks to the heart of what collecting is and memorabilia is. You know, you mentioned that you're not much of a collector that you accumulate. And I, I you know, not to speak for you, but I, I do feel that one of the reasons people want to get involved in collecting is so that they can be a part of the industry that they love or the sport that they love. You are already so much entrenched in it that maybe that's just not necessary. I mean, your memorabilia close to it. Yeah. Your memorabilia is that not, story. I just, I'm not comfortable in asking and I sure. know many people are, but I, and I, it's, I think it's a personal thing. It, it really doesn't have that much to do with the fact that I know these people and I, I interview them. It just, it feels presumptuous to me. Sure. And, you, know what, um, you know what, Bob, though, the, the thing is with, with people in your profession, there are people that do that. And I think that the athletes, knowing the from the athlete's point of view, they think that's, that is unprofessional. I think you cheesy, took the right tack there. Because there's yeah. guys that just, announcers and that that I know of, that just hound the guys. Like, hey, can you sign this? Can you sign that? And it, and the guys just shake their head, go, what, you know, you, it's just so unprofessional. Mm. You know, you're here to do your job. Don't, don't try and get autographs on the side. And it's not to say they won't do it if, if it's, you know, if it's for your kid or something like that or whatever it, special occasion, but not every time. You imagine the collection that you would have. Huh. You know what a Muhammad Ali well, autograph is worth right now? Thousands. Well, of I, I have, I have, you, you know what I have of Ali. Right. The pictures I took, I just got my first 35 millimeter camera before uh, I went down to the Bahamas with Ali. So I decided to take it. I'd never taken picture a picture before, like maybe with a Kodak Instamatic, you know, back in the day. Weren't big on but the selfies back then or what? <laughs> I had no idea how to use this camera and I was just goofing around. And so there I was and I took a bunch of shots. I um, at the Ali training camp, um, there was a guy there by the name of Tommy Hearns. Oh yeah, I who was love fighting Tommy on Hearns. the undercard, who nobody had ever heard of. At that point, no and one had heard. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Nobody had ever heard of him. This is before Duran and Leonard yep. and uh, um, and uh, Hagler. Hagler, I yep. guess. And there was this tall, skinny kid, and I just saw him in the ring, and he was unique because he was tall and gangly. So I took mm -hmm. a picture of him, and I remember that was one of the other pictures that I that I saw. And I took a couple of pictures of Ali. Well, I, I brought them home, got the film developed, and I did have eight by tens made of a couple of those pictures. And they immediately went into a drawer and stayed there for, I don't know how long, not quite 20 years. Wow. Do you remember, Brian, when we did those Ali things? It, was, it, it must have been eight years ago, 10 years probably ago. Probably after Gardini. Well, it's more than that. Yeah. The, yeah. the it, it might have been, been 20 years. So it could have been like 2003 right at the when beginning. We, did, we did those. And Brian had come over to the house for some reason, 
probably to mooch a beer. I was going to say, knock, knocking on your door yet again. <laughs> yeah. You know, Brian. <laughs> so, uh, and I don't remember the circumstances, but I showed him these two pictures and his eyes got big as saucers and said, do you know, oh, we could do some stuff with blah, blah, He says, where are the negatives? And I said, Brian, I got no idea. I didn't even know I had the photographs. And I looked all over the place, couldn't find the negatives. So Brian took the two eight by tens and I don't know what, what you did with them. Scanned did you create them. negatives or did you just, nope, just take, uh, them. blow them up? Yeah. Do you remember? We scanned them. Uh, you know, you can do that. And then, and then you can digitally increase the size. Would it have wasn't been a, as easy as it is today. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say now that's something you can do at home, but back then it was, it was yeah. finding a specific source that was able to, uh, to, to and, do that and the us. key is to get them blown up so that they don't, pixelate yes so you exactly get nice and clear right anyway um so your dad did that and then uh he decided or we decided to do 250 copies of each one and the hassle with getting ali by that point ali was you couldn't really talk to him right he couldn't he, he couldn't talk anymore and i've lost communication with him and touch with him so your dad convinced me to sign them. So I signed them as the photographer. Right. And hand numbered them. And they sold out in no yes. time. Yeah. Like a couple of weeks, I think, Brian. Yeah. Well, the last one, so can we kind of slow played it a little bit, but a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, Bob, here's the thing, because it was interesting. Um, one of the first shows that we did, we talked about with Daryl Sittler on the first show about how the memorabilia business evolved where it used to be the artist right. that did the painting and they would sign it. And then Daryl came along and did a painting where, or sorry, an artist did a painting and we had Daryl sign it. So that right. was one of the first pieces of art that the athlete signed and that took off and it was one of the forerunners to the memorabilia business. Yeah. And years later, we did an about face. We didn't get the athlete to sign it we got the artist and that was you. Right. And that was good enough along with the piece to create, a, I mean, otherwise it's just a, not just a photograph, it's a good photograph. Right. But everybody wanted your signature. And if you remember, we made a limited edition out right. of it. And yeah, you know, did. I'm gonna try They're and dig the one two. up because I've got one tucked away somewhere. I tried to find it before this we'll, show. We'll try to, to throw a, a photo of that piece in uh, in the video if you're watching this on, uh, on YouTube right now. It's a, what Bob's not saying is how good the photo was for an amateur. He was below for, for wow. an amateur. You want that qualifier? Uh, he, just, in there? he just he just you want you want to know the secret? Go ahead. If you you look carefully at that photograph, and and I I unashamedly point this out to everybody. Um, I act my my out of focus thumb is in the bottom left corner of one of the photographs. <laughs> Is that where you signed to just to make sure they know it's no, you? no. I mean, I, but I, I'm telling you, I, I knew nothing about taking a picture, right? I was as amateur as you could possibly be. I had no idea how to work this camera and somehow I got my thumb in front of the lens. And when I took the picture, I didn't even notice it except that there was in the bottom left corner, there was blur. This, this blur. Yeah. I remember and that. It just looks like somebody walked by or whatever. You really can't, you can't tell it's a thumb, but that's what it is. It's my thumb. <laughs> yeah. 
But you know, up, it, it up legitimizes close. the amateurism that was used to take the photograph. That's fair. Yeah. But he it, caught he caught Muhammad Ali with a look on his face. It was obvious that he knew you. That the look when he was looking down because you were, uh, he was up in the ring, I believe, right? Yeah, he was in the ring. I was down below, and I was looking up at him. And he was in he was actually in his corner between rounds of sparring. Right. Uh, so I'm going to try and dig that up so we can show the fans. It's Should a very on, image. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. How much time we got? Uh, we we got. We can give it another uh, five minutes or so. Yeah. So we, I did want to get into our our Gardunis episode a little bit because that was fun. Gardunis. So Gardunis, for the listener who doesn't know, is a uh, restaurant that was opened up by uh, my dad, Brian, uh, his brother, Alan, and uh, Doug Gilmore was a partner as well. It was open just across the street from Maple Leaf Gardens. Well, here's here's how that evolved, because I remember, and we talked about this, I would pull up to Maple Leaf Gardens, which was one of my accounts, right? leave the car right outside, because no policeman would give you a ticket because Harold Ballard didn't want any policeman to screw up his ticket sales because the box office was just in the door, right, right? Right, So none of the cops would ever give you a ticket, but nobody knew this but a few people. I would leave the car there for hours. But anyways, I pull up in front, and I look across the street, and I see a restaurant that's gone bankrupt there. And I'm thinking, this would be a great spot. How can you not go uh, do something right with a restaurant right sure, across from Maple Leaf Gardens? But to make it work, what if we had a couple of guys to promote it? Because I, you know, I opened a restaurant before, but having some people on board that would guarantee the success besides just the Wednesday nights and the Saturday right, nights. Right, 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 right. And the first call I made was to Bob. There you go. Said, you interested in getting into the restaurant business? He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> so, so you never said no to any idea until you heard it let's out, Let's set Bob. the stage. There's another knock at the door. <laughs> Middle of the night. Dad shows up. <laughs> yeah, I, I just said to Bob, he, he says, in fairness, he didn't say no. He said, what do you got in mind? Sure. And I said, you know what, Bob? I'm thinking this restaurant's got to be successful right across from Maple Leaf Gardens. I kind of know Doug Gilmore because we've started to do some business with him. I'm thinking... Guest on the podcast in a couple of weeks, by the way. Yeah. Right. And we, I said, I'm thinking that the three of us as a core element could attract a lot of attention to this bar. Sure. I'm a promoter. I can build it. But Bob's got the radio show with hundreds of thousands of listeners. Yeah. And Doug Gilmore is the hottest thing since sliced bread in Toronto. Three of us own that bar. And we actually put it together, eh, Bob? Yeah, we did. And... Um... It had, uh, it had a fair life. I mean, Maple Leaf Gardens hadn't shut down. It'd probably be still there today, huh? Well, that, that was the plan. We said it was, this was 93, I believe. And it said, everybody said, well, what are you going to do if they sell the gardens? And I said, by that time, we'll have made our money. <laughs> and, uh, with, you know, it was in an area that was uh, a predominantly gay area uh, around the gardens. I right. said, well, we can turn it into a gay bar because that's where the money is too. I mean, there's very successful uh gay bars in the na neighborhood or we just sell it and mm -hmm. so we ended up uh selling it in 99 uh because you know obviously the weekly business uh wasn't uh wasn't there sure every wednesday and saturday it was filled season long and then with bob's help well we had if you remember brian we had actually had to have two seatings for dinner right we had a 5 30 seating and a 6 30 seating and if you came to the 5 30 seating we kick your ass out at by 6.30 to let the next group in. And, and you know, after the game, it was packed. Probably one of the best openings because Wayne Gretzky you, just shut his restaurant down. Remember who down played? And, and that happened. You remember who played at the opening? 
Yeah, oh yeah. It was like I was there as well. It, we had some of the greatest uh, names in sport and entertainment Musicians. at the time. Who do we have, Bob? Well, you tell me. You tell me. I, mean, I want to see if you remember. I know. I, we had the bare naked ladies. There you go. There. That's what it was. So who were hot as a pistol at the oh, time? And they got up on stage, and Doug Gilmore got up. I mean, there was a few pops uh, <laughs> that everybody had. But I think great. Didn't Grapes get up there too? Grapes at some was point? there. You did your show from there that night with Jim Hunt, uh, and then because in that private back room that we had for celebrities and mm -hmm. that, and yeah. then. We had a stage set up. The Meteors, which was a local band, uh, played throughout the evening. But the the way I did this too was you you called a few friends, which are slam dunk. But I remember trying to get as many big name people for that opening as I could. And what I did was I'd phone up I'd phone up uh, management for the bare naked ladies sure. and a phone, sure. and I'd never get a call back. And then I, it then it hit me. I said, This is what I got to do. I, I'd phone somebody and say, uh, can I speak to so-and-so? And they said, oh, he's not here right now. Who's speaking? I said, oh, it's Doug Gilmore. Uh, I'm opening a restaurant, and I'd like to know if, uh, if, you, if you, your, uh, your client would like to show up for the opening. We'll send an invitation. Did you change your voice when you did this? Or was no, it, no, just, no, it was just they, you. Okay. they don't know. Sure. So I'd say, here's my number. Call me back. And, and sure enough, 20 minutes later, you know, that guy would, because Doug was so hot. Of course. At the time. That guy, the manager would call the band and the band would say, yeah, I'm going. I'd get the call back from the manager 20 minutes later and say, is Doug Gilmore there? I said, oh, no, this is the restaurant. Doug just left. Uh, <laughs> but if you're interested, I can pass on the message. That's and that's how we clip. got the bare naked ladies there and a ton of other celebrities. But Bob was instrumental in getting sure. some of the bigger names there every now, here's here's a question not to not to put you on the spot but uh why doug gilmore and not bob mccallan you could have used his name bob was doing his own thing okay okay he was okay. bringing in he was he brought in most he was of doing his work yeah. I, there was a couple of key people that i wanted there for entertainment purposes well there is a picture i do have a picture of opening night at gardoonies on my wall here well it, um uh, and, there's, and and of course you stuck your face in there too <laughs> But it's you and I and Grapes in the uh, in the picture. Grapes did your show that night. I cannot. There were some other key yes, things did. that happened in that restaurant. I remember they had the WW oh, WWF at the time came yeah. in and, and did uh, they before one of their events that they had at Maple Leaf Garden had uh, uh, a lot of the athletes show up and do performances, perform wrestlers. performances, the wrestlers themselves, before heading over and doing the show at the gardens. Remember the Undertaker walked in? Do and I remember? Dad, well, come on. Big wrestling I was, I mean, this well, was... How about, how about Meatloaf? Do you remember Meatloaf? Yes, 100%. Meatloaf, pre Meatloaf, Meatloaf was, was big, and, and Dougie and I went over, and uh, we got seats, and we uh, watched the concert. And then the record company, I believe, Brian, yep. booked our restaurant uh, for the post-show uh, party. And Meat did come over for, I, I want to say, about 10 or 15 minutes. Did Signed he not? some autographs. Is that your recollection? Sure. I still got an album signed by him. He, I was big Meat. Oh, did you? Fan. Well, see, that's you. You, see, yeah. you got albums signed. <laughs> I got nothing. No, but <laughs> you won't ask. I will. Yeah, no shame. I'm no not shame. a broadcaster. Yeah. Um, we're, so we're, we're kind of winding down here, uh, as always, Bob, we appreciate you coming on and, and hopefully down the line, we'll get you on again. Um, any, anything you want to plug before we get going here? 
Because, you know, our show has a ton of reach. You might be able to reach a new audience through us. Well, just our own podcast, uh, the Bob McCowan podcast is available uh, wherever you buy your podcasts or get them for free, more accurately. <laughs> and uh, you can watch it on uh, YouTube. And we have a new facility uh, where people can watch it now. And, and you know, with these things on, on the Internet, you can watch them on your big-ass big TV now if you want. Absolutely. And um, um, in addition to your podcast, um, Life, Love, and Lipstick is um, a, a really interesting podcast with two ladies who are both um, divorced with kids and what's life like in the single world for a mature woman. And um, they talk about it every day. And um, I can't think of anything else that I need oh, to promote. Good. Oh, yeah. I do own this winery, Stony Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I had a great afternoon there with you one one day we drove down, uh, my wife Lori and uh, and I, and you hosted us down there. We we and then we went over to the casino afterwards and stayed the night, so we didn't have to drive home. So Good it was time. great. Yeah, Good well, time. beautiful, 20, beautiful winery. If you're ever down in the Niagara region, you got to check it out. Thank you. Yeah. So keep yeah. an eye out. We obviously, do, we do the hip. We do the wines for the tragically hip and for and for uh, Glass Tiger. And uh, uh, more of those to come. If you can the, get your hands uh, on the them because they're sold out right away. Oh, is that true? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, yeah, keep an eye out. Uh, Fadu Productions obviously has a, a great uh, roster of podcasts to go check out. Uh, there's going to be a new launch of the website where you can find lists of all of those, including Life, Love, and Lipstick, which Bob yeah, that's coming soon. About. Yeah, coming soon. So once again, uh, for the sign-off and for Frameworth, Bob, thank you so much for joining us. For Brian Aaronworth, President of Frameworth, and myself, Mikey Aaronworth, this is us signing off. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we made it to the end of yet another episode. Thanks again so much for joining us. You can find videos of all of our episodes on YouTube by searching the Sign Off Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Frameworth Sport or Instagram at Frameworth Sports. And hey, if you're not sick of me yet, you can find me on Twitter over at, at Retrograde Mikey. Or you can always find me embarrassing myself over on Instagram at Aaronworth. The Sign Off is a proud product of Fadu Productions and Sad Styles Productions, executive producers Mikey Aaronworth and Andrew Bascom. Until next week, this is Mikey Aaronworth, signing off. Furnished by Sad Styles Productions. Get into it!